0: Infection control out of a skilled nursing facility was a tremendous challenge even before a global pandemic swept the United States, for a variety of reasons. But resources, training, and regulation are some of the most important. Dr. Buffy Lloyd Krejci, who started her own infection control consulting firm and worked with doctors without borders in nursing homes during COVID-19, believes a top-down overhaul is needed, regulations included. She joined Rethink to talk about why. I am joined by Dr. Buffy Lloyd-Krejci. She is the CEO of IPC Well. Buffy, thank you so much for coming on to Rethink today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So the very first place to start, I think, is just what does IPC Well do? What is your work in nursing homes? And how has that work been over the past year?
1: Yes, so we are an infection prevention and control firm specifically targeting underserved or under-resourced populations such as long-term care facilities or nursing homes. And we provide a real robust infection prevention control services such as going on site, uh, working with the actual staff, providing training and education. And so before COVID, we were doing this, you know, on a pretty routine basis. And then, of course, the pandemic hit and has obviously exacerbated the situation, especially in underserved populations such as the nursing homes.
0: What led you to focus on infection control in nursing homes specifically, Um, even pre-pandemic, that was something that it sounds like you've worked on?
1: Yeah, so before the pandemic and really what motivated me to start IPC well was that I was working on a national collaborative with the CDC and CMS supporting nursing homes across the country to report an infectious disease known as Clostridioides difficile infection or C. diff into the CDC's National Healthcare Safety Network or NHSN. And we were having nursing homes report and collect C. diff data because there really isn't a lot of actual standardized surveillance for infectious diseases. And the actual estimates of infections in nursing homes are between one and three million infections occurring every single year and resulting in 380,000 deaths. And I like to tell people that's over a thousand people dying every day in nursing homes due to infections. So this this was quite eye-opening for me, having a background in acute care and also in, in research. I wasn't as familiar with this problem in nursing homes. It, it wasn't as well understood. So this really opened my eyes and motivated me to really want to do more. And so I stepped out, I created IPC Well, and then started targeting facilities to help them start collecting infectious disease data. What I'll say is that I was a little naive in thinking that they were ready for that because as I started going to more and more facilities, I realized that data surveillance was not, they weren't ready. So I was i was happy if they would wash their hands basically at that point versus having them actually collect data. It, it was a step that is necessary, but they needed to start with the basic infection control practices first.
0: What was some of the reasons that it was that there was that lack of readiness? Is it related to resources or the kind of the where the odd place that nursing homes have in the healthcare continuum? Just kind of why why was that the case?
1: Traditionally, the long-term care facility has been a bit behind with some of our practices. And it wasn't until 2016 that CMS or the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, their regulatory agency actually mandated that every skilled nursing facility that is certified by CMS in the United States was required to begin implementing an infection control program. So we're just talking a few years ago. And in 2017, they were required to have An infection control program in 2018, an antibiotic stewardship program. And then November 28th of 2019, just a few months before this whole pandemic started, they were required to have a part-time infection preventionist on site. So they didn't they weren't ready because it hasn't been a priority. And I would say the reason it hasn't been a priority, now now we've always had infection control practices, but it hasn't been a priority in a sense that we've really focused on it and worked on it proactively. And the reason being is because within this healthcare setting there's, first of all, it's heavily, heavily regulated. And so the facilities will focus and target on those areas that are, are demanding the highest attention from regulation whether that's fall risk or pressure injuries or antipsychotic use. Those are the areas, you know, whatever area the regulations are really focused on, this is where the nursing home's attentions are. And so it wasn't until really the last year or two that infection control has, has been a, a higher priority.
0: So let's go back to the last year or so then. What, you know, when you were working on this as COVID hit, what did you see on the ground in facilities and what were some of the, you know, challenges and you know obstacles around infection control specific to COVID that you saw in your work, you know, with individual facilities?
1: When we first started hearing of this novel virus from China, my first thought because it was being described as an airborne virus, my first thought was, well, In skilled nursing facilities, we don't take care of patients that have airborne infections such as tuberculosis or measles. Those require a specific protocol, they require negative air room, they require N ninety-five respirators, which you have to be fit tested, And, and we don't do that. All those patients are cared for in the hospital. So first I was, you know, hoping that it was going to be contained, that because it seemed at first that we had this we had some tracing that was occurring. But then when we saw the nursing home um, outbreak in the Kirkland, Washington nursing home, I knew that we were we were headed for some trouble. And early on what I saw and as the country saw was just the demand for personal protective equipment or PPE. And you know, with, when governors are bidding over getting PPE you know, we know that the nursing homes are, are going to be challenged with it. And if they didn't have a hospital partner or part of a larger corporation, they definitely suffered many, many nursing homes that I worked with were suffering greatly without the personal protective equipment. And, and we'll talk later that they some of them still are. And also just the training. I mean, our healthcare system was not prepared. And so you can imagine with infection control, not as a high of a priority in long-term care until just a few short months and years before, they were definitely unprepared. And so it was a shock to the system and we didn't have the expertise, the training, the equipment. And when states such as New York started requiring nursing homes to take residents with COVID, we definitely felt the impact. And that's where we saw a lot of the the challenges start happening because we didn't have what we needed.
0: So given that reality, can you go into some of the work that you did with, with nursing homes during this time period, given the very real, you know, physical obstacles in the form of the lack of PPE to, you know, infection control?
1: Yeah. So through about March and April, I was doing mostly a lot of remote work. The nursing homes had been mandated to shut down. And, you know, so I was doing a lot of remote work and quite frankly, a lot of the nursing homes that I was working with, they had maybe one or two cases, but they weren't in, in hot water. It was after the birth of my grandson in May, I was in Tennessee, and I received an email that the Doctors Without Borders was looking to begin a, a mission here in the United States, in Detroit, in Detroit, Michigan. And I knew that it was my time to get out into the middle of it. And so I had responded to the their request. And within, I think, days, I was being interviewed and going through the the actual process, um, you know, medical screening and whatnot. And I I joined the team in Detroit in June, June 1st, I started. And I worked with, with the Doctors Without Borders team. Again, it was their first U.S. mission. They are an international humanitarian group. And a lot, because a lot of borders were closed, they thought it's time to help the U.S. here at home. And so it was a team of staff that had worked a lot of, on Ebola in the field. And so I was quite honored to be able to work with such esteemed colleagues. What I soon learned was that none of them had long-term care experience, uh, specifically in in the U.S. They had taken a program that had started in Belgium and then tried to adapt it here into Detroit. And, it, and we were able to do that with some success. But within days of being on site, I knew that we had to take a different approach with our nursing homes. And so fortunately, the team is so fluid that, you know, we basically create the program for the needs of the community. That's the main goal is to support. And so we started going on site to these nursing homes and realized very quickly that some of them were going to need more than maybe one visit. So we would come in, we would do an infection control assessment. We would do a tour of the facility, talk to them, listen to what they needed, and then write up basically an assessment or our recommendations. But it became very apparent that many of the facilities would need more. And so since I was the only one trained in this this specialty, my role became what we called as being embedded into the facilities where I would go on site for about three to four hours a day per one facility and just work with the staff. We found that the primary staff that I worked with was actually non-clinical. It was the environmental services as this is the front line for the infection control where the housekeepers aren't always trained very well and they're literally going into every single room providing, you know, cleaning the rooms. And they can also be very responsible then to transmit the virus if they're not appropriately cleaning. And so I would spend time, I would get in there with them. I would clean toilets with them. I would demonstrate how to put on PPE, how to take it off. And just to give you an example, I was on site in one facility and the housekeeper, I said, well, show me what you do for this room. And it was a COVID positive room. And she just walked right in the room and started cleaning. She didn't put PPE on. She didn't have her, you know, proper equipment because she didn't really understand this the seriousness of it. And so we really went to work very, very heavily in supporting that non clinical staff, as well as the clinical staff as well. So we would conduct classes and and provide services. But even that was more targeted toward the certified nursing assistants or those staff that just don't have as much training as as the nurses do. Right. And that makes me think
0: of something that you had mentioned at the you know very beginning, just the issue around infection control and the focus of it because of the the regulated aspect of the skilled nursing world. It results in a focus being on specific areas. I know that, you know, given what you've seen over the course of COVID, like, what are your thoughts on just the way that the infrastructure from the regulatory standpoint, how do you think that works or doesn't work to support infection control in skilled nursing facilities?
1: We definitely need regulations and we need oversight. There's no doubt about that. The problem, however, is that the oversight that is provided in nursing homes is, has been designed to be punitive in its whole structure, it is not meant to be collaborative. It is, you know, we're going to come in, we're going to find what you're doing wrong, and we're going to write up a report. We're going to cite you, we're going to find you, and you're going to fix it. And it's almost this, you know, it's a a huge burden on the nursing homes. If we had more of a collaboration such as we do in, in our hospitals where the accrediting bodies actually come in and offer solutions and support, it would be a whole different story. And within this pandemic, to me, it has been completely inappropriate. And based on the feedback that I've received from hundreds of people in nursing homes is that it has been a waste of time and actually completely devastating to the industry. And what I mean by that is, CMS announced early on that they were going and this was in April or May. They announced early on that they were going to discontinue the typical annual survey process and they were going to focus on COVID infection control, which yeah, sounds great and it sounds like this is exactly what they need to do. Good, we're going to we're going to help them. But what would target what would actually a nursing home would if a nursing home was in an outbreak? then that would target a survey process. And they would come in, the surveyors would come in during a facility's most vulnerable time. Remember, I said they didn't have what they needed. Oftentimes during an outbreak, staff are out sick or they're out on leave or they've quit because they're afraid of being there. So they're coming in when you're low staffed, you're, you're stretched at your capacity, you're very stressed out trying to implement guidance that changes from day to day to day and trying to keep track of all the updated guidance. And then you have these surveyors come in who are often rude, who are often unsympathetic. And basically, well, you know, I've heard the term gotcha from many administrators and they're just looking for what's wrong. It's also the surveyors are not as well-trained as they used to be. And so where they used to do Week long trainings and intensive training, and then have mentors. Now, they're, all their training's done online and they don't have the intensive training that they used to. And so they're not actually equipped or skilled to really understand some of these practices. And so they would, they're very nitpicky. So they would maybe cite somebody for putting PPE on wrong, or, you know, it's just those kind of the easier to easier to identify solutions that that can just happen, not because we don't understand it, but because we're in the middle of a crisis. And so then this has been, then the facility has a citation, they have to do a plan of correction. They have days and days that they have to devote to filling out paperwork to demonstrate that they have remediated the problem, which takes away from the stat, which takes away from resident care, again in the middle of their outbreak in their crisis. So there there has and it, and they don't offer solutions, they don't offer help. So it really is not a time for a regulatory system to come in and say, you know, here's what you're doing wrong. It's it was we needed more of collaborative approach and support, especially in this population where they're already like we say they were under trained and they didn't have what they needed. And so than to have the their regulatory body come in and say, guess what? You don't have what you needed and we're going to cite you for it. You know, it just, it, it's really been defeating. And quite frankly, the industry, the morale is so low right now and administrators feel defeated. They're leaving the industry. I talked to an IP, an infection preventionist, yesterday and she said if the one thing she wished she could do right now is just boost morale because nobody wants to be there anymore. And that's sad to me that, that we've damaged the industry that way.
0: You mentioned a couple times now this issue of not having what people what they need for for this aspect of it. I guess from the work that you've you've done over the course of this year, how big of an issue is PPE, like even now? And the reason I'm curious about that is because towards the end of 2020, I would say probably in the second half of it, I would occasionally hear anecdotes about, you know, oh there's shortages of equipment in some place or another. But then kind of in the aggregate, most people seem to say, no, there's not really an issue getting what we need right now. You know, given that you've been in the facilities proper, you know, what has been that situation for personal protective equipment?
1: So even yes, I mean, every day this week, and every day last week, I've had calls asking how we can get gloves. Like there is this glove shortage right now. And my nursing homes are going to Walgreens and they're getting these gloves that tear and rip. And which is interesting because gloves weren't really a big issue last year. So I find it and I don't really understand why, but so now gloves, we can't seem to get gloves. And of course, we need gloves for all of our our patient care. The other area is with the N95 respirators, we couldn't get them and neither could the hospitals. So it it was, it was well understood, but there was this kind of double standard, like, well, we want you to care for these residents, but it's okay to use a surgical mask, or it's okay to use a KN95 mask. And then over the course of, we've been able to get more, what I still hear from my administrators is, you know, they're still, they're still reusing the PPE because it's so expensive. So if we have a new admission, every new admission that comes into a nursing home, unless they're fully vaccinated, which only changed a few weeks ago, has to go on a 14-day quarantine. And in that 14-day quarantine, they have to wear gown, gloves, N95 respirator, face shield, every single person that walks in that door. I've had facilities cited for just dropping off a tray and not wearing the full PPE. So every single person that walks in that room has to wear a head-to-toe PPE, and that gets very expensive. I was actually going through and just a little analysis myself. And on average, that's still about thirty dollars to $40,000 a month just in PPE costs alone. So that's a big challenge for facilities. And so if you're, if you're talking about an N95 respirator that used to cost 30 cents to a dollar, and now they're anywhere from five to $7, we may have some of the supply, but the cost is so astronomical that it's still a burden to the facilities. And then some facilities I'll say are in this strange pandemic mode. I I had a nursing home from Detroit actually call me last week and they're in another outbreak and they said, well, we hung up all our hooks, we're reusing our gowns. And I said, well, do you have gowns? And she said, oh yeah, we have gowns. And I said, well, why are you reusing them? And she goes, oh, I I guess that's just what we do, what we did. And so I think it's unlearning some of these practices as well that we got used to when we were in a crisis capacity and didn't have the supply. So I don't think the problem is solved, but then there's also the problem of unlearning some of our practices with, oh, yeah. with what we had that minimal supply.
0: Yeah. It's probably similar to like getting used to the idea of maybe not needing to wear a mask outdoors anymore. If you're a right. like normal member of the population, it still feels a little bit weird. Right. I mean, given this reality, like, What needs to happen in terms of support for nursing homes, given that things are still, like, expensive and still that there is this challenge of getting equipment and securing equipment? What would you say the the need is for support, whether it's from the regulatory side or, or some other aspect of the field, that isn't there right now? Like, what do they need that they're not getting?
1: Well, this, this goes to a more systemic problem. And this is something I would say, even with Doctors Without Borders, they quickly realized is that a quick three-month mission isn't going to solve this problem. And it, it's a chronic problem. It's not acute, you know, like chronic, like it's a long, long issue where acute, you know, you break the leg, you fix it, you move on. And that's similar to what Doctors Without Borders it does where this problem is something that is going to take a lot of work. But I do believe it's time and our our residents deserve it. Our healthcare workers need it. What is needed right now is to, quite frankly, stop this punitive punishment for our nursing homes. When our hospitals have been celebrated as heroes, our nursing homes have been vilified and we have to stop it. Or we're or it's only going to get worse, and none of us are going to feel comfortable admitting our loved ones into a nursing home because we're not going to have the quality of care that that, that our family and loved ones deserve. And so we have to begin shifting from this punitive nature to collaboration. We, we just have to. It It's gotten worse and worse and worse, and this pandemic has just cracked it so wide open that that is number one and number two our nursing homes need support they need financial support they need training education and because they're so afraid of the punitive nature they're resistant to reach out to their public health because they've had too many experiences where they reach out to public health for support and then it gets communicated over to licensing and then they have licensing knocking at the door so we really do have to have this program of support for these nursing homes where they can trust us to help them and not have licensing come and, and knock at their door. I remember working in Houston with Doctors Without Borders as well. And uh, I remember one of our, our my colleagues had said, you know, it's like we had such a hard time even getting the nursing homes to trust us, to trust Doctors Without Borders, this global entity, because they were so afraid of punitive nature. And, and one of my colleagues said, it's like Mike Tyson, you know, that comes up to you and says, do you want me to train you? And you're like, no, I'm good. That's okay. And and that's what it's like. You know, like we were there to help them, and they they were too scared that it would be punitive. And so, unless until we change that, they're not going to get the support they need, and it's going to continue on the way it is, and it's going to hurt the industry. So definitely shifting that that punitive nature, and then then offering collaborative on site support and training and education to their staff.
0: That actually raises something I had wanted to ask that concern over the punitive aspect of it. Is that something that you see in like the frontline staff, like the direct caregivers? That is how, how, you know, widespread and pervasive is that among the direct care workforce?
1: Oh, absolutely. It's, it's amongst the whole, yeah, it's everybody. It's, it's the whole building. If, if you have a towel out of place, you can get a citation. I mean, if you're, you know, I mean, it's, it's such nitpicky things that are important don't get me wrong but it's just ridiculous you know and yeah it's for the it's for everybody and i'm writing a book about this because i saw this from coast to coast every nursing home i went into it was the same story and i'm like okay it's time for somebody to tell this story and and that's why i'm so grateful that we can have this conversation because the story does need to be told it's, you know, the, the nursing homes, I like I said, they often get the bad rap in media, but we don't necessarily understand what's going on behind the scenes and and the burdens and pressures that they're trying to overcome within the industry.
0: What would you like to see change? I mean, obviously, as a result of COVID, but also just given your work and, and the fact that you've been able to see this kind of cross country, what would you like to see change about both infection control in skilled nursing facilities and the culture around it, as well as around how it's enforced and regulated?
1: You know, this, it was hard for me to get my messaging out. I was preaching, you could say, about the harms and deaths with infections before COVID, And because there were other priorities that the nursing homes were facing, I was often not listened to or turned away. And now, of course, you know, with this pandemic, people realize that infection control is a huge priority, not just for COVID. I mean, we have multi-drug resistant organisms such as C. diff and MRSA and, you know, all these other infections in nursing homes, UTIs that can turn septic. and, And so we have a lot of work to do. And I am hopeful that, the, you know, the silver lining of this is that we can really take a look at our infection control programs and model what has been done with our acute care facilities and having funded, nationally funded, infection control quality improvement projects that help us begin to work proactively in mitigating these harms. Because you know, our loved ones don't have to die from an infection that we give them in a healthcare facility. And for years, even in hospitals, we thought that was normal and it's not. And we've been able to demonstrate over the last decade with quality improvement projects that we can proactively reduce these infections and save lives. And so this is my hope within the nursing home that we can begin these projects, but it's going to take funding. It's going to take national support and collaboration and i believe we're we're heading in that direction so i am hopeful that we can it is going to be a priority and i believe as far as you know for for any loved you know if i had a loved one in a nursing home right now i would want to inquire what is your infection control program like you know and and be proactive as a consumer of your your the facility. Instead of us talking about the problem, let's join in the solution and and provide support. They have family council meetings at every nursing home, and you can join the family council meeting and ensure that the right care is being provided and the right services.
0: I certainly hope that happens because if there's one thing that I keep hoping over the course of this year, it's that there will be concrete improvements and progress on both the infection, but also just the quality of life and and the quality of care in nursing homes. So I definitely hope that all of this comes to pass. Um, Buffy, thank you so much for, for making the time to join us on Rethink today.
1: I appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Rethink. I'm Maggie Flynn, and this has been a production of Aging Media Network, Chicago, Illinois. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud and sign up for our daily or weekly newsletters at skillednursingnews.com.